Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for uh, being so on time. It is unusual. I have, uh, I'm the father of three kids, which already probably disqualifies me as anyone with any investment uh, acumen. Uh, my middle child is uh, my only daughter, Rachel. I didn't want to call her that at first. I wanted to call her Paris Zeta. Uh, loved the name Paris, loved the name Zeta, uh, but realized that going through life with a name like Paris Zeta Mole is probably not a great... Uh, why I tell you that story is our next speaker has a similar story. You'll see on your, uh, um, on your program, it's Izar Mpangu. Um, but it's not. It's actually Isaiah. Now, that's not a typo on our program. That's a typo from Home Affairs in his ID book. And as I was just saying, it's just too much hassle to change it, so he's just stuck around as uh, Isaiah, which would have been a great name for a rapper, not an economist, obviously. But, uh, but it is, in fact, Isaiah. Uh, and you're in good company because Oprah's real name is Orpah. That's what's on her ID book, but people kept getting it wrong, and so she just kind of accepted Oprah. And that's where that comes from. So, Isaiah, great to have you with us. Uh, let me tell you a bit about him. He's the executive chief economist of Alexander Forbes Investments. He uh, was formerly a senior economist at the Rand Merchant Bank, at APSA Capital, at National Treasury, uh, National Treasury Senior Economist for Macroeconomic Policy. Also held the position of an economist at the International Monetary Fund and was involved in monitoring of South African macroeconomic and financial indicators. All that to say it's amazing that despite knowing that, he still has two Harley Davidsons in his garage, which, you know, I don't know how you put the two together as an economist and a Harley Davidson collector, but he'll tell you, I'm sure. So why don't you give a big round of applause, please, for our next speaker talking about the future. Isaiah Mlhanko. Thank you, everybody, for inviting me to come and share some thoughts on the macroeconomic environment. I'm sure you, you would all agree we come from a period of optimism in the first quarter of the year because of the changes in the political environment. But unfortunately, that optimism has died very fast as it came. Okay, so the title of my talk is Policy Out of Sync driving divergence in macroeconomic and financial markets performance. Meaning that what is driving the performance of different economies globally is policy. You can put a caveat in that, also politics. It's in the US, it's in Europe, it's in China, it's also in our own, in our own country. I'll talk through a number of uh, themes. Four of them, firstly, I'm saying in the global environment, economic policy is out of sync and is driving the macroeconomic performance out of sync. You have the US growing quite positively, strongest growth we have seen in a number of years, unemployment rated multi-year lows. But also if you look in Europe, nothing much is taking place. In China, we start to see a reflating of the economy and those divergences are the ones that are driving uh, equity markets in different directions. And I'm going to show a bit of some charts that are going to, to allude to that, to that factor. In advanced economies, growth is now US-centric, which means what we see in most of advanced economies is centered around the US, and nothing much is happening in Japan or in Europe. Uh, and if you look in the US in particular, the economic cycle has been extended by the fiscal stimulus, which means 
Next year, when the fiscal stimulus wanes, we are likely to see a slowdown in U.S. economic growth. And what will this mean to U.S. Uh, financial markets or equity markets, given that if we look currently, they are overvalued. Um, and if you look in history, whenever we see overvaluation of equity markets, the 10-year period that follows, it normally is characterized with low returns. Are we going to see the same? That's the question that we, we, we're grappling with. Because sometimes uh, a lot of people say, look, time is not a determining factor for how long the economic cycle lasts or when the economic cycle tends. But if you look at what this, the US Fed is doing, they're hiking interest rates at a time when equity markets are already overvalued. So are they going to be responsible for tipping the US economy into recession or not? And then the third theme in emerging markets is really centered about China. It's a very big economy that have an influence in emerging markets and commodity, commodity prices, which we are still quite dependent on, although not in the same, uh, to the same extent as we used previously. And then lastly, for us, what does it mean? The new dawn is not yet here. It has not yet arrived. So you'd have had the new dawn being preached about at the beginning of the year from last year, when Cyril won the ANC presidency. If we look at first quarter growth, it contracted by 2.2%, and second quarter numbers don't look as promising. Likely, we are going to see growth in the region of 1% this year, which is far lower than what we had, uh, what was forecasted by Treasury, at least of 1.5%. You have seen economic forecast being uh, revised downwards across the board which means this economic recovery is going to be much slower than what we have seen in other recoveries, which has implications for the investments that you guys make. Um, we are in a period of low return environments. The double digits returns that we are accustomed to are not going to be, um, to be realized. So it has implications for the investments that you, that you make. So just to illustrate the point, if you look, these are numbers that were, that were produced by the International Monetary Fund in July. You can see advanced economies slow down as we move into next year. But in emerging markets, except for China, we see many of the big emerging markets' economic growth forecast to improve into next year. But earlier in the year, we've already seen economic surprise indices as slowing down from the second quarter of this year, which means the synchronized economic growth that we have been talking about at the end of the year and the beginning of, the, of this year is no more. We start to see diverging growth in advanced economies with the U.S. continuing to grow for now, but next year it's expected to slow down. But what is also important to note in other um, periods where we had economic slowdown expected, we had one or two of advanced economies being in recession. This time around, we don't have a single country in, in recession, but the growth that we see out of the U.S. is benefiting the U.S. dollar and by implication resulting into weakness in emerging market currencies, including ourselves. Bearing in mind, we also have issues in Argentina, issues in Turkey as risk events that always come up when we have uh, the, the U.S. Fed raising interest rates. Now, just to illustrate the diverging 
economic growth that we see in the U.S. The fiscal stimulus of $200 billion that was uh, instituted has resulted into quite strong economic growth. But this is for the first time you see a fiscal stimulus in the U.S. when the economy is quite strong, which means this is the one single uh, factor that has been responsible for extending the U.S. economic cycle. But also it has implications for where we're going into next year because that fiscal stimulus is going to end. And if, if you also look at some of the indicators that are coming out of the U.S., we have not yet seen wage growth to the same extent that it would have been expected because of the fiscal stimulus, which means a lot of the benefit that comes from tax cuts is not being reinvested back into the economy. If you look at share buybacks in the U.S., they've been the order of the day, which means it's not durable in terms of how it's going to impact on economic growth in the U.S. But if you look in Europe, it's the opposite. They have been tightening fiscal policy for some time since 2011 into, until 2016. And this has been responsible for the weak economic growth that we see. While monetary policy in Europe remains quite accommodative, it's expected to start tightening end of this year into next year. Expected interest rates are only going to start in the fourth quarter of, of next year. So if you look at the US and Europe, the divergence in policies is driving the divergence in equity market performance, where the S&P 500 continues to to grow, reaching record highs, while if you look in European stocks, they have been battling quite a bit. If you look in China, what we have there the, on the, at the top is what we call a fiscal impulse, which is simply the difference or the difference in a year-to-year -year fiscal deficit. And on the top side, it means fiscal impulse is tightening, and on the bottom side, fiscal uh, policy is loosening. And we can see that tightening of fiscal policy over the past couple of years was responsible for lower economic growth in China, which is something that they have to reverse. And to reverse it, you have to loosen fiscal policy, which is something that they have already started complemented by loosening monetary policy as well. So if we look at this policy out of sync, U.S. fiscal stimulus, in Europe, we have fiscal tightening, and in China, fiscal tightening also responsible for the slowdown in economic growth. It implies that to reverse these divergences, these countries will also need to reverse their policies which they've instituted over the past uh, couple of years. And this is going to be important in driving uh, asset class returns going forward. Just to focus a bit on China, you can see much of the slowdown in economic growth have been driven by fiscal policy largely centered on the state-owned fixed investment, which has been slowing down for quite some time. But also financial conditions have been tightening, which is a big driver for equity markets in China. In terms of our expectations of what's going to happen in China is we're going to see a significant loosening of fiscal policy, which is shown by that orange bar, which is the forecast of the issuance in terms of debt that is likely to come out of China, which means this is going to reflect the economy, which is ultimately going to lead to a recovery in economic growth, likely to start to be visible in the fourth quarter of this year and going to benefit 
emerging markets and commodity prices. If you, if you listen uh, currently in, across radio or TV, you hear a lot of talk of emerging markets in crisis because of the issues in Argentina, the issues in Turkey, and of course for, for good reasons, because if you look at financing needs in emerging markets, some of them, including South Africa, by the way, have increased quite significantly, especially foreign currency debt. But if you look relative to 2015, we are in a better position if we look at financing needs than, than where we were in 2015, which means emerging markets economies are better placed this time around to deal with event risks or shocks to the economy than they were when the taper tantrum uh, took place in 2013-2015. What does this imply? This is the policy out of sync. It comes out in equity market performance. You can see the S&P 500 shooting the lights. If you look in China, it has been declining for quite some time. And in Europe, because nothing much has been happening there, you also see quite uh, subdued growth in, in equity markets. But if you also look between advanced economies and emerging markets, you can see the divergence as well. Because advanced economies led by the US have been doing uh, okay, but going into next year, we expect this kind of uh, performance to reverse. As the US starts to, to slow down, it's going to pull down advanced economies' economic growth because other economies in the advanced, econ in the advanced world have already been taking a knock for some time. So once the U.S. resynchronized with the other economies, we're going to see a slowdown in advanced economies. But for emerging markets, we continue to expect some strong growth into next year. Uh, if you look at forecasts from the IMF, the World Bank, they all seem to agree uh, that emerging markets are going to continue to, to, to grow quite positively. Now, what is going to change this thing? First, the expectation that the Fed is going to hike interest rate twice this year and three times next year. Perhaps it's going to, 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 to backtrack from that hike because we are just about 23 basis points from inverting the yield curve, which means if we invert the U.S. yield curve, uh, the U.S. normally tends to go into recession four or five quarters thereafter. So we don't expect the U.S. to continue to, to increase interest rates. So if you just look there, five more hikes from where we are, it's going to invade the yield curve. But our expectation is as the Fed sees the risks of increasing interest rates, as we move into next year when the fiscal stimulus is going to wane, it's going to put the US economy into a significant risk of actually going into a recession. They're going to backtrack from hiking interest rates. Now, the way markets work is given expectations, when those expectations are disappointed, is going to, to react. So if the Fed backtracks from hiking interest rate, it's going to be quite positive EMs. It's going to, to reignite a, a risk a appetite, which is going to benefit emerging markets. Now, just looking at the equity markets, you can see they are quite stretched, except for the 2000s.com bubble. We have reached uh, overstretched position since 1880. And some, some would say there's still some, some steam in U.S. equities, but if you look across histories, every time it reaches these points, uh, you will see a slowdown or a correction in equity markets. Yes, in February this year, we saw a 10% drop, but that was not 
long-lived. We still expect a correction in the U.S. equity market going forward, given that as the Fed hikes interest rate, all interest rate sensitive stocks are likely to be hit. Uh, if you look at earnings re reports or, uh, that have been coming out of the U.S., they've been quite downbeat, um, which is something that we expect will eventually tip the equity markets going forward. But if you look at the interest rates, this is the real interest rate, which is the long-term 10-year uh, bond yield. The subsequent peaks since the 1980s has tended to be lower than the previous peak, which means we don't expect these long-term interest rates to increase significantly from where they are. Just looking at the trend from 1981, subsequent peaks have been tended to be lower, which is the same thing as we see in the Fed. Subsequent peaks in where they hike interest rate have also tended to be lower. That's why we don't believe they're going to continue to hike interest rates, given that uh, we have concerns on economic growth slowing down next year as the fiscal stimulus also starts to wane. Now, the power of the yield curve in predicting uh, U.S. economic recessions, seven out of seven past recessions have always been preceded by a yield curve inversion. Uh, and that has led the economy four to five quarters later uh, sinking into, into a recession. And if we look where we are currently, just about less than 25 basis points from inverting the yield curve, if the Fed continues to hike interest rates, for sure it will invert the yield curve. Whether you, you, you would subscribe that this time is different, that a, a, an invasion of the yield curve is not going to lead to a U.S. economic recession, I think you just have to look at history, and if you believe in history, you have to actually believe there's a significant risk of the economy sinking into recession. And what normally happens is we speak of something that we call a dollar smile, Something that is extremely good for the U.S. economy is bad for emerging markets, but if something that is also extremely bad for the U.S. is bad for emerging markets. So if we go into a recession, all emerging markets are going to be impacted negatively because there's going to be flight to quality. But if the U.S. economy continues to grow quite significantly as it is currently, emerging market currencies and uh, assets also suffer as we currently see. So we just need the U.S. economy to perform just okay for the rest of the world to be okay. So where are we going? It doesn't seem that the U.S. economy is going to be just okay. It's either the Fed is going to uh, backtrack from hiking rates or they're going to sink the economy into recession late 2019 into 2020. So this is a significant risk that we see. If you look, the economic cycle is the longest uh, that we have seen uh, so far. Uh, which says we are just about at the right time when the economy should be turning downwards. But fortunately, it has been extended by the fiscal stimulus, which is going to wane next year. Just looking at the different countries' uh, P-E ratios, these are cyclically adjusted. We can see which markets are overvalued, which is the dark blue lines, and which markets are undervalued. So this gives us a sense of where we're actually likely to see some value, and mostly it is in emerging markets. So emerging market equities are still quite cheap, which means they still offer better opportunities for, 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 for investments. But as for the U.S., you can see the extent of overvaluation is quite stretched. 
which means we should expect a correction sooner rather than later. What does this mean for South Africa? Uh, what we're saying here is South Africa's economic recovery is going to be quite slow. So what we show on the uh, first chart on the top left is that economic growth this time around is much weaker than it has been in other uh, recoveries. If you look at government investment, is also much weaker than it has been in other recoveries. Of course, we would understand the fiscal challenges that we have, and as government cut expenditure, they cut fixed investment, not current investment, which means they are choking the source of future economic growth. That's why you see that slow pace of economic recovery. But what is more telling is the private sector investment, which is at the bottom. It's the slowest pace that we have seen uh, since uh, the 1980s. And you can see this is primarily why South Africa's economic growth is lackluster or even um, verging on, the, on, a, on, a, on a, a technical recession as we go into second quarter numbers. Part of this reason is because the consumer upswing that has tended to lead economic recoveries is not there. We have seen increases in personal income tax for a number of years now, but we also had a VAT increase currently. But if you look at the cost of living, you look at petrol price increases, you look at electricity price increases, they have chipped away on the consumer pocket such that we are not seeing a strong consumer upswing compared to what we have seen previously. But also the credit cycle this time around is quite muted. If you consider in the run-up to the financial crisis, we had credit growing in double digits. Post the financial crisis 2011 to 2013, 2014, credit quite recovered quite strongly. This time around, we don't see a strong recovery in credit, which is in part why we see the consumer upswing being very slow. But fiscal policy also has tended to be pro-cyclical instead of being counter-cyclical, which means it's not supporting economic growth when the economy is weak. Simply because we did not do the consolidation that was required when we're growing at a better rate than we are now. So this consolidation is going to be forced on us because there's no other way to, to fix our fiscal numbers. But also the poor state of state-owned companies, you would know the issues at ESCOM, Transnet, Danel, and SAA, which should be laying down the infrastructure for the private sector to actually invest more efficiently. They have been quite poor. And unfortunately, the private sector as well has been complicit in that, which means they cannot use their voice as investors to actually point fingers and say, you government, you are doing something that is wrong. So this is in part the fabric that we have undergone over the past couple of years where we have seen investor confidence being eroded, which translate into low investment and low growth and by implication, low job uh, creation and spending by the consumer. Is this going to last? We think it's going to last for some few years to come. We are in an election cycle and we are not expecting any significant policy changes affected before 2019. So for this year, growth is going to be to remain quite weak. What will be the saving grace is President Ramaphosa's $100 billion drive in investment, but there are caveats to this. These numbers come from the infrastructure, global infrastructure hub that estimated 
that South Africa requires about $100 billion in investment by 2030 in order to fix the infrastructure that is going to be the basis on which the, the economy can grow. And we can see where are the sectors uh, where the, there is an investment gap in road, energy, ports, ICT, and the likes. This is something that offers opportunity for investors like yourself, which we call something that we call private markets, where you can invest directly into the economy. You have better control in there than investing on, on the JEC. But is this achievable? It seems like a, an ambitious goal. So we looked across Africa to try and see what is the possibility of achieving this. So we took numbers from the, uh, from the World Bank back to 1980 and look at which countries have been able to attract significant levels of investment. And you can see across the different African regions that most of the investment went to one, one country. If you look in North Africa, it went to Egypt. If you look in uh, Central Africa, Angola, and Nigeria, in, in West Africa, in East Africa, Tanzania, Mozambique, and in Southern Africa, of course, ourselves. What is common amongst those countries is that all of them, they are commodity producers. All of them are commodity producers. That is a very important aspect. And these countries gener generated or they were able to attract over 70% of FDI into the different regions where they reside. Now, we also look across the different uh, continents to try and see how does Africa rank. And you can see Africa's ability to attract FDI has been the lowest across the different continents. Now, having said that, because the president wants to attract investment over a five-year period, we take a five-year cumulative sum to try and see if among the countries that have been able to attract investment, there is any that have been able to attract $100 billion in five years. Not even a single country was able to attract half of what the president is looking for. And those that have been able to, it was during the commodity boom. We don't have a commodity boom anymore. So what is going to be the selling point that will enable the president to attract this level of investment, given that even in the commodity boom, not even a single country in Africa was able to attract half of what is requesting. So it says to us we are skeptical. It's a huge or significant goal that he has set without the requisite policy certainty is unlikely to happen. Yes, this year we have already seen some $35 billion commitments from Saudi Arabia, UAE, and China. But the difference is these are government-to-government -government commitments. And if we, I were to give an example that when Putin was here during the BRICS summit, President Cyril Ramaphosa just told him we can't afford nuclear at this point in time and we don't need it. That was an investment by Russia and South Africa gone. That is the nature of government-to-government -government investments. As long as it's not committed by the private sector, we cannot say it's actual investment before it flows into the country. So it remains a commitment. So as far as we are concerned, we are still at zero in terms of attracting FDI, which the president is requesting. But of course, commitments in themselves, they say it's, it's some positive. It's tentative. There is some positive outlook. But we will remain skeptical until 
the issue of land expropriation without compensation is, is resolved until, of course, the, the issues in the broadband, the rolling out of broadband is resolved until we see proper functioning of SOEs that should be the bedrock until, of course, we fix our fiscal numbers back into space where, where we can be able to, to, to actually grow from. As it stands, we are very skeptical because the challenges that lie ahead are quite significant, uh, not just in government, but also in the private sector. While I did a roadshow across Europe earlier in the year, speaking with investors, their sense was they are seeing positive change, but they don't want to kickstart South Africa's economic growth. They merely, they merely want to participate in it, which means for us to generate growth, it has to be internally generated. It has to start with local private sector investing in the economy. But if you look at corporate South Africa's behavior over the past five years, they've tended to increase investment outside the country rather than inside the country. What is going to change that pattern? They require policy certainty. And given the election cycle that we are in, we are unlikely to see policy certainty until the end of uh, uh, elections next year. So it's a wait and see until next year. Now, what do we expect to come out of that e election? Obviously, the ANC is going to win. Uh, <laughs> they're going to win as they have done previously. And my expectations will be they're going to win with an even slightly stronger, stronger majority than they did in the 2016 elections. If you want to see how, just look at where Cyril was doing his, his uh, morning walks. He's flanked by all people of different types, which means he has a general liking from the, from the population. Now, we hope the win by a slightly stronger majority is going to give him enough mandate to say he can put, push through the required reforms uh, that are required to, to actually uh, attract fixed investment. So it's a slightly positive story, but tentative. Hence, we are saying the new dawn has not yet arrived. It's still some months ahead of us. But the unfortunate part also is we are picking up when the global environment is expected to start to slow down. And if you look historically, South Africa's economic growth has always been tied to the global economic cycle. Of course, we decoupled from eco global economic growth in the post-financial crisis because the rest of the world grew quite faster while we grew quite slow because of internally generated problems. But we are starting to recouple into the global economic cycle at a time when the global environment is turning lower. Are we going to back the trend? I think my, my, my sense is we are not going to be able to because South Africa is a very small open economy uh, whose fortunes is driven by and large by what happens in other, other countries. So I'll, I'll stop there and we can do a couple of questions. I said thank you very much. You mentioned a slightly positive story. I think that's the part I missed because I didn't see any positivity anywhere in the <laughs> entire presentation. I'm like, oh, oh, we should go on for a ride in his Harley this morning and not come here. But, um, but thank you for the sobering insights, uh, rather the truth than putting our heads in the sand. Any questions for Isaiah? <clears throat> we have some roving mics. 
maybe to clarify the positivity. No, no, <laughs> David. I heard a radio commentator saying that the US equity markets are not actually overvalued because there's this massive platform of the fiscal stimulus. And that actually from that, you, you need to look at it from that trajectory upwards rather than the trajectory that has gone up to there. Uh, I suppose that would imply if that fiscal stimulus is pulled away, then, then it would collapse. But what's your thoughts on that stimulus actually being an artificially, so you always say if things look like they did in the past. Just a thought. Okay, can we take another one? Then I'll answer this sometime. Sure. First question. There's one right at the back, Hildegard. And then just a little question from my side. Yep, there we go. Um, thanks, Nazar. Just um, talking about fiscal consolidation, what measures would the government have to undertake to achieve that? And uh, should I sell my house now or sit out in the pretty? Do we have one more? If not, I think we can. Yeah, we do. Let's do that third one, and then we'll hand it back to you, I say. Uh, so my question is more around a lot of the indicators that are coming out from some of these economies. Uh, in particular, things like PMI numbers, particularly in the States, are looking very high. I think the ISM is at 58. The market is at about 54. Would you hold it a little closer, just so that oh, I can hear you? Um, so a lot of the economic indicators out there are looking very, very positive. Um, and the picture that you've painted here um, seems a bit opposite to, 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 to some of those indicators. What weight do you put uh, you know, to consumer confidence, to, um, you know, but particularly, let's say, uh, on PMI? Um, and also, you know, leading indicators uh, in, in, in the country. I think it was very positive, the one that just came out now. Okay, so to respond to the first question on overvaluation, if you look at PE ratios, historically, um, we are at overstretched positions. Uh, if you look at 32, the long-term average is about 16. So if you look at 32 relative to 16, clearly it should indicate that we are in an overvalued territory. Of course, the fiscal stimulus is in part responsible for inflating uh, those PE numbers, which is why I think once the fiscal stimulus wanes into next year, we are likely to see uh, those PE uh, numbers uh, come down quite significantly because we won't have any, any um, artificial support to the economy. But at the same time, if you also look at what the Fed is doing, they are going to depress a lot of interest rate sensitive stocks, which will lead to a slowdown in, in a lot of the uh, equity, equity stocks that drive the, the S&P. And that, that will be your, your large, large cap stocks. They are quite interest rate sensitive. So once we see the Fed continuing to hike interest rate, we expect a correction in, in those numbers. So yes, at this point in time, if you look historically, 32 relative to a long-term average of 16 says it's, over, it's overvalued. To respond to the fiscal, um, what, what measures do we have for fiscal consolidation? National Treasury already knows what it needs to do. We have already perhaps uh, read some articles and potential of cutting 30,000 jobs, uh, which, which was of course uh, refuted by the unions. The numbers were already done in 2016. If you look at the medium term budget policy statement in 2016, it did an analysis of 
how bloated the public sector is in terms of uh, the number of civil servants. And they came up with a 30,000 jobs cut, focusing on people that are 55 years and above, trying to give them uh, retrenchment packages or early retirement packages, which has been, of course, refuted. But if you look currently, we had a 30 billion overspent on wages by the wage agreement that was uh, agreed upon with the unions earlier in the year. We also have another 4 billion that is going to be a cost to the fiscals because of the increase in the number of VET, uh, zero-rated products. Now, if you also look at Treasury's forecast of economic growth and forecast earlier in the year, it forecasted 1.5%, growth is going to be 1%, which means the tax revenue collections that were forecasted for are not going to materialize. We are not going to be able to reach 1.3 trillion, simply because real economic growth has been weak. But if you also look at nominal economic growth, on which, uh, which is the basis for tax calculations, it has been slowing down for the past four to five years. So the risks of a fiscal slippage is quite high. My expectations is we are not going to be able to hit 3.6% as a percentage of GDP. We are likely to be 4.2% percent, percent of GDP this year, which means we started a lower base this year as we move into next year. Next year's growth numbers are also going to be lower than what was expected. We are unlikely to reach 2%. Given that it's an election year, no one is focused on actually implementing policies, nothing is going to be done until after the elections that when we can expect some improvement in economic growth. So this year we're going to miss the fiscal numbers. Next year we're also likely to going to miss them. And if you look at Moody's, they've already alluded to that effect, where they expect this year to be, uh, to, we are expected to miss the fiscal deficit targets that we have this year. But the spending pressures in all other departments, it still remains. So while we are not being able to generate enough revenues and we are overspending, the social spending requirements have not declined, which means we will continue to have this upward pressure on the fiscals. But what is required to be done, unfortunately, is not something that the labor unions and civil society in general would want. What Treyali needed to do was not to increase the number of zero-rated uh, products. It simply stay put and cut 30,000 jobs because this puts our fiscal sustainability into shape. What is required is actually to, to reform the economy in a way that it can generate employment, it can reduce the number of people that receive social grants so that they can work for themselves and also contribute to, the, to, to tax revenues uh, collections. What you are seeing from government is almost a band-aid kind of approach where you just um, put a short-term solution while the structural issues remain with us. So yes, next year these issues will, will still be with us. The need for cutting spending is going to be imposed if we are not going to, to do it actively ahead of time. And to respond to the improvements in PMI numbers, yes, if you look at the US PMI numbers have been positive. These have been, of course, held by the fiscal stimulus. But if you look at economic surprise, by the way, PMI numbers are but one indicator of the economy that look into the manufacturing sector. If you look at the services PMI, they've been quite weak. And the trend 
in many other countries, even including ourselves, the services sector has become much larger than the, the, the other sector where, where we have actual production of goods. So while we see an improvement in the goods producing sectors, the services sectors have been uh, depressed quite significantly. So the total uh, picture is one where we see some economies that are quite significant, like Europe, you look at Japan, they've been quite weak. Of course, the US has been growing alone because they are the only ones that have been instituting a fiscal stimulus. So it's expected for their leading indicators to, to show an improving, an improving picture. Right. Isaiah, thank you very much. I think let's leave it there. I fear any more answers. <laughs> uh, really appreciate your time. We have a gift for you, uh, some magic mushrooms, some Prozac, and a small bottle of Jack Daniels. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> let's give Isaiah a big round of applause. Thank you, Isaiah. Thank you. Appreciate it.